Hello and welcome to episode 46 of Just Keep Writing. A podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. I'm Marshall. I'm Nick. And I'm Will. And with us again this week to help us intro this episode, uh, interview with Dan Wells, is Brent Lambert. Welcome back to the show. (laughs) Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. I love how many appearances you're making lately. It's great. There's like four episodes in a row with you, and it's it's awesome. I love I mean, it. It's great. I love coming here. So. <laughs> we love having you, man. Appreciate it. Appreciate it. All right. So at the top of the show, why don't we talk about we've all been doing crazy conver- conventions, virtual conventions. Uh, so since we have Brent with us to record an episode, we thought he we'd have him help us uh, intro this episode with Dan Wells. And so it's a little to be a little more timely. Why don't we talk about conventions and Brent, why don't you just tell us, in a nutshell, best you can, how FiaCon went, um, successes, um, all that. I mean, honestly, from what I was able to see, it was amazing. I loved every bit of it. I got to see uh, LeVar Burton as well in the Ignite Awards, so that was was kick-ass. So um, just tell us how it went, man, and and what you thought and and all that. And we love having you here. Thanks for hanging out with us. Yeah, no doubt. Um, Firecon, I guess in a nutshell, it was an amazing event. Uh, the panels went well. I feel like people were actually clamoring over, like, they were conflicted about which one to go to. So I think that's always a good sign. Um, people were very happy with the Ignite Awards. We got a lot of, you know, praise and everyone just seemed happy, which is something someone kind of pointed out that, like, you know, take issues aside because we did have a few. Everyone was still happy. Like, so I think. Overall, I think it, yeah, I think it went well just because, um, yeah, everyone was just happy and it was a good time. Panelists were happy. The tech team worked well together. Yeah. Overall, I just, I'm really happy with how it came out. And I already have people asking me about next year. I'm not thinking about next year yet, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you moderated um, some of the guest of honor panels and stuff like that. I mean, you guys, I mean, you can go to the site and see who was there and all that stuff i'm sure but like are there any just straight up moments that you just want to tell us that were just amazing just to get people enticed for next year since people are already asking yeah um i guess for me i really really love talking to cassie hart um she was just like so honest and vulnerable when we were talking about you know her work and what was inspiring it and you know it just yeah, I I admire her putting herself out there like that, knowing that so many people were watching and still just being vulnerable. That was a huge moment for me. Um, my favorite thing though was the M Dash game. That was <laughs> hilarious. I had such a good time. Um, I spent more time laughing than hosting because they were just <laughs> such good contestants. And yeah, we already have like an idea of like how to continue it, just because. People really love the game and they want to see it outside of the convention too. So yeah, those two, those two things really just stuck in my mind. Awesome. Well, uh, again, I, I'm stoked. I'm, I was, I'm stoked it happened. I was bummed. I had to miss part of it. And that's kind of segue into kind of what, uh, myself and Will were doing kind of while Firecon was going on. I was working for, uh, the WXR writing excuses retreat, basically that was leading up into Surrey. And so it was social events and all this other stuff that was going on, which was fun, but, and I, you know, exhausting. I think I spent 12 hours roughly at my computer on Sunday. Uh, I had a 7am like writing date. There were like 20 people frantically writing. It was really cool. 
Um, and then we did a panel in the afternoon and I was going to pick Will's brain about this a little bit. Um, I think we had a, I think we had a blast. It's up on the Surrey site. Um, but we had a podcast panel, uh, literally a panel about podcasting. It was me, Will, Nick, and, um, Piper, uh, and Matthew Drake. And it was a blast. It was super fun. I don't know. Will, what did you think of that panel? <laughs> well, I mean, apparently the panel was all about me, uh, from certain <laughs> That's why people. I <laughs> yeah. So I was getting asked a lot of questions and I basically stole the show. No, I didn't. That was not the point. But a lot of the questions were asked about like how it was coming on while you and Nick already had done 30 some odd episodes and then asking me to be a co-host permanently. I thought it was fun. We had a great time. I love Piper and Matt. They were really a lot of fun. Yeah, they're they're awesome people. And uh, I, I, the reason I asked you that question though, is I know you, you got some of that feedback, but it made a lot of sense considering where podcasting is and how guests kind of become hosts and that kind of stuff. And so it, it made sense for the conversation. So it was about you for a bit, but it wasn't all about you, buddy. No, thank God. <laughs> um, I didn't, re- I didn't expect that. I thought I was going to sit back and just be like, Hey, what's up? I thought you <laughs> and Nick were going to be like, you know, this is how we started. We started from the ground up oh, and Lord. you know, we just got better, you know, like you'd be like growing out, but you guys, did, everyone did great. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was a ton of fun. And we, um, in a month or so, we're probably going to put that up on the websites. Um, when it comes down from the Surrey site, I mean, we had captured the video and stuff. Uh, I messed with the audio a little bit, so it's kind of nicer and it's, it's, it was a cool panel. So I'm glad we got to do that. What did you think of it? I thought it was really fun. I did. I I thought it was really fun. And I think in that process, like it's really helped like visualize how much I've grown as a person was really highlighted in that panel because I'm, I'm unwilling to say, Hey, I messed up my bad. Hey, I forgot we talked about that for a bit. <laughs> it's recorded. Go listen to it. Um, you know, yeah. And sometimes that that's life's journey. And I'm hoping that my mistakes, someone else can stumble upon and not make the same mistakes that I have and things like that. You know, I want to talk about that for a minute because you know, oh. I had other people uh, message me in our Discord of saying how much they loved that episode and that it was a really great conversation that could have gone towards um a darker a big fight a big fight um so brent just i mean I'll, brent i'll fill you in just so you so you're here but we can edit this out no it's fine it, it was a pride episode and um we were just talking about i was specifically talking about like when you get to see yourself as someone who's in the lgbtq community and nick made a comment that was a it's good really was a good teaching moment, but also yeah. because we knew Nick, it's like sometimes you have to, sometimes you know I could have chosen to do heavy lifting or not do heavy lifting, right? But it was a comment that when he was saying um, about well the gay thing wasn't like out there, and so I stopped. You can literally hear me pause, and I said, <laughs> "It wasn't well, in your face," is what he said, yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and I said, um, "Hmm." Let's unpack that for a minute because the towel can come off. <laughs> let's be. Let's give the full line here. I was yeah. talking about Gideon the Ninth and why I liked it, and yeah. I liked it because it had LGBTQ characters. But I also liked it because, and I, 
as I quote myself was, it wasn't like, oh, gay, gay, gay. Like it's throwing it in your face. And I said it and I was like, I was like, and this is the wrong thing to say, but I don't know how else to say it because my vocabulary is not there yet. And I was just like, let's unpack this. And I was like, oh, this is a therapy session. I'm because uh, really- I wasn't trying to offend anyone, but yeah. it was like one of those things. It was like, it was a growth me, moment for Nick. Yeah, it, it was, I was trying to say, I just loved how it wasn't an issue in the book where someone was being demonized for their sexuality. Ah, uh, okay. And, yeah, and see, it- <laughs> we got yeah. we got there eventually, Brent. But the, yeah, you know, it, it was just the initial moment. I was like, "Oh, here we go." <laughs> because it was really my point of saying, you know, there was sex in the book, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so that was my point to like Nick of being like, you know, listen to like when we hear things like that, it's like as someone, whether in any, I feel like marginalized group, you hear something like this where you have to make yourself feel smaller to accommodate people's um, images of what you should be. And that's why we talked about it. And it went, people actually messaged me after, after that talk and was like, that's actually one of our favorite episodes because they were like, Nick was really willing to listen and to say, Oh, I did. I did wrong. I messed up. And at the same time, I was willing to um, not beat him um, over the computer screen. And you know, and I got to moderate, so that was fun. Yes, <laughs> yeah, it was. It that was a learning moment for me, and I've had plenty of them in the last few years. But that back to like that panel, yeah, I felt like when it came to like discussing podcasting and things like that, you have to be open to be schooled. You have to be open to learn and to be willing to listen to you know your listeners and your co-hosts and things like that. So that was a, I don't know, that was a good panel. That was a good episode. It was a very <laughs> momentous episode, if you will, for me. So I missed out a lot on the rest of Surrey because I was mentally exhausted and I just couldn't get myself back to my computer again. So you did Surrey and then that overlapped with Shinarakon, right? That you went to? Yeah, it was Shinarakon was the same, like a Friday night. Okay. Um, I'll talk about Surrey first. Yeah. Um, I did a master class in the multiverse of plotting, mm-hmm. uh, which was amazing. It was with Elizabeth Boyle and um, Mary Robinette Cole. And it just took you through all the different types of plotting systems, uh, what worked, but also how the frameworks all overlap. And I think the best thing I heard about it is that they were saying, you know, this isn't a way for you to just when you're in writing your book that you're thinking about these things and they um they both actually said don't do that okay let yourself if you're a reader you intuitively know what is going to happen use it as tools to reinverse Mm. to re-engineer your book okay Okay. and there are going to be times where you're going to use the three-act structure you know and then the hero's journey and then seven point plot pl- structure. There's right. a few other ones we went over. Uh, that class was amazing. Um, Liza Palmer gave uh, a class on the third act and how to make it surprising. And she also did another class about act two. And if anyone has never taken a class with Liza Palmer, she is amazing. 
She has tons of energy. She gives you like modern examples of in TV, movies, books, and she's just so much fun to listen to. And she really takes the time to answer people's questions and she thinks about it. You know, she really intakes, she listens really well. Nice. Um, another class I took, oh, there were so many I took. I took Dan Wells' class. I took um, a class on getting over fear of writing by Laura Bradley. And um, that was also really great. Overall, this is the third time I've been to Surrey. That was actually okay. my first writing conference, like when I was thinking about, oh, do I think I can be a writer or can I do this? Uh, maybe one day I won't write like I'm in third grade <laughs> and I have a secret crush on a boy and I'm not telling anyone, you know? <laughs> so they're very welcoming. What I really liked about this year too is seeing a lot of the writing excuses um, crew, not, not the teachers because Mary Robinette was always involved in it. But yeah. what I liked about it is that the people who went to writing excuses, actually, this was their first time doing Surrey. And I thought that also upped inclus inclusiveness mm -hmm. of it. Like we really got more people um, from all over, even though Surrey does get a lot of people from all over. I feel like the nature of writing excuses, because they do classes a lot on their podcast about writing the other, they talk about, you know, paradigm shifts and the way society structure that that kind of gears people of all walks of life to go to it so i thought that was really well and robert well, and Gugini did a I, i'm sorry i don't mean to interrupt you but robert Gugini mm -hmm. did this really great um speech that was amazing all about like why we write and mm -hmm. why writing and art in difficult times is so important and that you can't let tough times keep you down because all art has purpose. Nice. And and I was just going to say too, um, to bring Nick back into the conversation, because uh, he's been there the whole time. Uh, we hey. were thinking. <laughs> uh, so I think that was what I really enjoyed about my time with overlapping virtual conventions too, was, you know, Nick and, you know, we've done writing excuses for the, you know, the last two years. But then coming into this year, knowing that community was widening, going into uh, taking on Surrey folks, like having those conversations during like the social events, for example, during the WXR nights, we had people mm -hmm. from that were just there for Surrey. They were like, oh, this is super cool. And then we got to know them and there were some really cool folks. So, um, Nick, any takeaways from um, the WXR social stuff or any of the Surrey stuff you went to? You know, I totally failed on Surrey and I'm really glad that it's all recorded and I get to rewatch it this week and in, in the evenings. Uh, Cause I, I just started school again, doing a coding boot camp, And so I've been pretty busy with that with a new job kids. Right. So I, I actually needed a break a little bit and because series recorded, I kind of allowed myself to do that. Um, but throughout this week, because I've already finished my work for my class this week, uh, each evening I'm going to try to do a class. Um, listen to something from Siri. And so overall, guys, I mean, you know, this is the intro to uh, an episode, an interview with Dan Wells. Let's not forget. Um, but I did want to take this opportunity because uh, all these conventions were so fresh in our mind and the episodes coming out. I thought it'd be nice, especially since we have Brent with us, we could chat about uh, what we've been doing. And so I really appreciate um, everything that went on, all the hard work 
that you put in, Brent, for to make Viacon happen. Man, I can't oh, well even done. can't even Thanks, imagine dude. what that would have looked like. So, <sighs> yeah, <laughs> if you miss it this year and you don't know what the hell we're talking about, you got you got to get signed up for next year. If it's even you know, however way, shape, or form you guys do it next year, um, I, I I can't wait to see what you guys come up with, and I can't wait to catch up on the panels I missed because I worked my butt off that weekend. So, <laughs> yeah, I think some of the replays actually uploaded today, so you should be able to start watching some. Yeah, that's awesome. totally. Yeah, I got an email earlier from some of the friend stuff that was happening, so I can't wait yeah. to check that stuff out because that was in the middle of the night for me, and I was like, I can, I could stay up, but I also have to do a whole bunch of stuff the next day, so I can't wait to check yeah. them out the ones I missed. So, yeah, we're gonna lead into the Dan Wells interview here. Any quick things you want to say about that interview before we get into it? Before our listeners hear it, this interview went a different way than I thought. How so? Because I because I was really trying to like, I was hoping we could peg down the serial killer side of Dan, mm-hmm. and it turned out that we got this almost emotionally raw side of Dan as an author, and it was like it was really good. Uh, I, I think in that moment we could have talked to him for hours, like you know, like we do with most of our guests. I feel like, yeah, but yeah, it was just a really good episode. Lots of nuggets and knowledge. Like, I was just gonna say, there's some advice in there that's invaluable for aspiring authors for sure. So, oh, for yeah, there. Take notes on this one. I would say this is like taking a master class with Dan <laughs> and having one of the best moderators out there, aka Will. Um, <laughs> well, kind of well, you did things. a great job, by the way. You did great. Um, of moderating yeah doing your thing oh thanks thanks okay <laughs> gold star i'm gonna hang it up <laughs> so anyway uh any other thoughts before we get into the interview i loved it we had a good time talking to dan um it was really fun and he gave me some good advice as everyone's torturing me to send out my piece submit, which submit i will your damn story will you'll hear I that will. in the episode by the way do yep. it dan's dan's pretty much like will come on <laughs> send it out Get rejected, make it better, send it out again. Exactly. Try fail cycle. <laughs> so without further ado, let's get into the interview uh, with Dan Wells. All right. And joining us this week is Dan Wells. Thanks for being on the show. We appreciate it. How are you doing? Hey, I am happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. I'm great. How are you? <laughs> oh, we're, we're doing great. We're stoked to have you. And um, basically, we're just going to ask you a few questions and, and see how the chat goes. We all know each other. So this is kind of fun. Um, it's nice to kind of sit down with folks we know. Um, and do this kind of thing. And uh, yeah, so I'm going to pass it over to Will. And Will's going to ask uh, the first question, which is always always a good one. So what do you got? Yeah, this is a question we ask all of our guest authors. Um, and it's describe your career in three words. My career in three words? Yeah. Does it have to form a like a grammatically correct sentence? No, not it at all. It can just be any three words at all. Any three words exactly. that just come right to your mind. Okay. Uh, my career in three words is horror, poverty, and oh crap, I said and. Is that one of my words? No. Horror, <laughs> poverty, redemption. Ooh. Oh, I love it. So <laughs> let's talk about those three words. So let's start <laughs> with horror. <laughs> Yeah, so I started as a horror author, which is funny to me and probably to nobody else because I'm known primarily as a horror author, uh, but I never intended to become one. I, I, I don't read a lot of horror. 
or, or what is traditionally described as horror and grew up mostly just in fantasy. I thought I was going to be a fantasy author, but then, you know, in the process of trying new things and finding what works and what doesn't, I wrote a really good horror book and that was the first one that sold. And so that became my career. Uh, I've got, I think 19 published books right now of which approximately half are horror novels, maybe a little less than that. Uh, but certainly all the first ones and certainly the famous ones. So yeah, that, 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 that still amuses me. And, uh, I am proud to be a horror writer, but, uh, it, it was it was not on purpose. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, poverty. Poverty. Well, first of all, I, I suspect that most authors could pick poverty as one of their three words because nobody gets into this business because they want money, right? It's mm-hmm. even the successful ones don't have a lot. And poverty is a is a cheating word for me to use because I do have six children and I am able to house and feed them all. as a full-time writer. So, but the reason that was my middle word is that there was a good four-year period where all of that mortgage and food money was coming from savings because I was not selling books and I was not getting new things coming in. Um, I, you know, had a pretty good run with those early horror books. And then I got into YA and that's actually when I hit the New York Times bestseller list was with the Partial series. And those books were great. They were really selling hotcakes. And you've got one right there. Um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I read that series, too. I really enjoyed that series. Yeah, that's that's not a series that I try to sell right now. I don't push <laughs> that very hard. Right. Like, uh, do you want to read about the plague <laughs> apocalypse that destroys the world? No, of course, nobody does. Right. But six years ago, that was the bee's knees. Then that all stopped. Uh, and there are various reasons, some of which I'm happier about than others, that it all stopped. But this does happen to a lot of writers where, you know, they will have some early success and then everything dries up. And for a solid three years, I could not sell a manuscript to save my life. Uh, wow. And it was frustrating and I couldn't figure out what was going on and I didn't know what to do about it. And we had a pretty good nest egg that we have now completely eaten all of and are starting over from scratch with that third word redemption. uh, My redemption came in the form of audible. Um, I still cannot sell print books, but I have got several audio books that have been fantastic and uh, they're audio originals. They come f- audible is the publisher on them. And just, you know, to really hammer home how dumb this industry is. <laughs> one of those called Zero G. It was my first big middle grade and my first big audiobook. That was in the like the top 10 best selling books on Audible for about seven or eight weeks. Not just wow. best in middle grade, best yeah. overall. I sold better than Michelle Obama for at least a couple of days in there. Wow. Um, And even with that pedigree, seven or eight weeks on the top 10 bestseller list, about another five weeks on their middle grade bestseller list. It was just me and JK Rowling for about (laughs) a month and a half. Um, Even with that pedigree, I could not sell the print rights to that book anywhere. 
because accepted wisdom, quote unquote, is that uh, nobody buys middle grade science fiction. So nobody bought this best selling beloved book. And I ended up self pubbing it. I'm, I'm really curious about that, too, because I consume a lot of, well, I'd say 90% of books these days via Audible. And and I love Zero G, and we've talked about this. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a wonderful book. And I'm sure people are asking you if you can get it print. But why do you think why do you think it doesn't cross over to print? Is it because people are uh, consuming more audio books? Or I mean, I'm just I'm really curious to see your take on this, because I, I love Audible. And, and I know it doesn't work for everybody. Like mm-hmm. my, my wife, you know, I, I have to buy her hard copy books because she can't do Audible, but I can consume audio books like nothing, you know? Yeah. So I'm curious. Uh, I mean, the what I am being told pretty constantly by the publishers who reject it are is this is great. We love it. But nobody buys middle grade science fiction. And so it it really is kind of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of thing that if if no publisher thinks they can sell middle grade SF, then no one will publish it and no one will buy it. And then they have all these numbers to say, look, nobody buys this, which is stupid. But that's kind of what traditional publishers have to do is play the odds and none of them are willing to take the risk right now. Middle grade fantasy sells fantastically well. And so that is next on my plate is to write a middle grade (laughs) fantasy and see if I can kind of leverage that. And genre specific. basically. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, and when you think about it, it's hard to name more than a handful of modern middle grade science fiction. There's not much of it out there. And this is why, because people don't think they can sell it. One of the things that I'm going to do, and I don't know when because I don't have time for any of this. One of the categories that is selling just fiendishly well right now on Amazon are educational books. For obvious reasons, because like there's 30 to 40 percent more homeschooling now than there was two months ago. Yeah, for sure. It's a huge thing. It's a huge wave. Parents are desperate for books that can help them teach their kids. So I'm going to put out an edition of Zero G as soon as I can probably January, that is essentially annotated and is its own study manual. Uh, Because with one or two exceptions, it is a hard SF book. All of the science in it is real. All of the use of gravity and the use of, you know, all these other things. And so I can turn it into an educational book and say, oh, uh, this thing that gets referenced, that's real. Let's talk about that and see if I can sell it that way. I don't know if that's going to work, but I'm going to try to find the time and, and make it happen. No, I like that idea for sure. Yeah, um, absolutely. With with so many people at home and, you know, being a teacher myself and trying to teach virtually, it's, you know, whatever, whatever we can get at this point that'll yeah. engage kids is what we need. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I personally would like that because my boys have listened to it on Audible too. And um, we're working on reading comprehension for one of mm-hmm. them. And mm-hmm. so having a little bit more activities do to behind a book really helps out. But when you have to find it on your own, it's not the easiest to go and do. Right? Yeah. To, and, and if if there were a science book that talked about space exploration and physics and all of these things, but in the context of a cool story about a kid fighting off pirates, like I think that there's a lot of value in that. And that a lot of parents would be really eager to say, okay, if you will just pay attention to this <laughs> for five minutes, then I can teach you something. 
So I guess this is good that we're talking about middle grade and learning. So when you were a kid, were books a big part of growing up? Absolutely. My parents are both big readers, you know, and they would read to us all the time. Uh, My dad read us The Hobbit. He read us Lord of the Rings. He uh, read us Narnia. Um, When I was in sixth grade and I had a a fantastic elementary school and my teachers were all great. And my sixth grade teacher assigned us the the Pern books, the Dragon Rider books. And my dad was like, he's he's been a fantasy geek his whole life. And so he just went nuts and he pulled out all his old copies. He's like, yes, you're old enough to read these now. Let's go. Uh, And at the same time, my mom was uh, also a huge reader. She uh, has MS and for most of my childhood was bedridden and couldn't get around and do stuff. But what she could do was read and she was reading constantly. And I remember, you know, even in second or third grade, that was one of the ways that I could kind of play, quote unquote, with my mom was reading competitions. Uh Who can read their book faster? And her books were bigger, but she could still usually finish them first. You know, every memory of my family, there's always a book there. There's there's a book on the nightstand. There's a book by the shelf. When my mom would suddenly go into remission and she was healthy and we would go camping, she would bring a book and read it by the campfire. Uh, Uh, We were always reading as as kids. So what were your influences? Like when you decided like, actually, let's roll back. When did you decide you wanted to be right? Were you young or was it like later? I actually told my parents in second grade that I was going to be a writer. Wow. Uh, and I wrote at that point a, uh, a choose your own adventure book, uh, which was, which I thought was devilishly clever because it was a maze and I made it loop. So you couldn't ever get out of it. <laughs> it was such a dick move, but <laughs> maybe that's what set me up to become a horror writer eventually. Right? Like, hey, screw you, audience. I'm going to kill yeah. all your favorite characters. Um, so, yeah, in second grade, uh, I had already decided. And a lot of that comes from, you know, the love of reading that I had. And a lot of it just comes from the love of words. When you talk about influences, I will always point to A.A. A. Milne and the Christopher Robin poems. Uh, because yes, Winnie the Pooh, great, whatever. But the poetry book is what absolutely fired up my imagination because you can tell when reading that, that he is not just writing, he is playing with words. He is having fun with them. And that's what I wanted to do. And then, of course, I got into our wonderful American school system and they beat that out of me pretty solidly. Um, And by the time I got to college, I went into an editing program because I had become convinced that the only way to make a living with words was as an editor. That was like the responsible professional version of playing with words and was very fortunate to have a really good creative writing teacher, David Farland, famous fantasy author. He Mm -hmm. taught one section of creative writing my sophomore year of college And uh, I was in that class. Brandon Sanderson was in that class. A couple of other people were in that class. And we all, he came in the very first day, very first period, walked in, set his books down on the table and said, you can make a living as an artist. And no one had ever told me that before. And that, you know, reignited all the fires. And we went straight into it. He focused his whole class on the business side of writing. You know, he talked about the the craft a little bit but most was 
how do you actually do this? How do you make it work? Right. And Brandon and I formed a writing group and we took it really seriously and, and really worked at it. So it, it was, uh, you know, a childhood love of reading and then this miraculous confluence of events in college that, uh, brought it all back to life. So what, who influenced you, um, as a writer when you first started out? It's a wide range and this is going to sound really snobby to list some of these off. Um, but, uh, I really love French and Russian literature. Like I am an English major and mm -hmm. I was in like accelerated programs all through school. So yes, I've read most of what Dostoevsky ever wrote. I've read uh, the unabridged Les Mis and like in high school. And those were the books that really got my motor going. And then at the same time, a lot of this kind of silver age fantasy, like the Pern books, uh, Fred Saberhagen absolutely was a, an enormous influence on me and probably more so than any other author. Um, because what Saberhagen did is he crossed genres. He wrote fantasy and science fiction and horror, and he was a bestseller in all of them. So when I look back on my own career and, you know, he was not only a huge influence on my desire to write, but convincing me that I could get away with genre hopping, that I could do all these other things. And so I will point to Russian literature as what made me a horror writer. Uh, because like I said, I didn't really grow up reading horror or considering myself a horror person, but that kind of bleak nihilistic viewpoint <laughs> that is there embedded in all of Russian literature mixed with this enormous love of speculative fiction and fantasy. And, and that is kind of where I think I come from. Now, when you think about who influences you now, like do any of your peers, do you feel like when you read them, does it push you to either like level up or does it make you excited to want to uh, write your own stories or your own spin just on what's coming out currently? Sort of, yes. Um, Partials is a good example because Partials is just me saying, I want to play with other people's toys. It is such a blend. I mean, it's essentially Stephen King's The Stand mixed with Battlestar Galactica starring mm -hmm. Hermione Granger. Like that is yeah. my... <laughs> personal log line for what partials is. If I see somebody doing something really cool, that's what gets me excited to say, oh, that does look like a fun toy to play with. Let's go for it. Um, stylistically, I don't know if I can point to anybody specifically, but there are absolutely authors out there who inspire me. Uh, and Sherry Priest is one that I, I need to mention because I, you know, I'm, I'm not a finish the book reader. If I get three or four chapters in and I'm just not feeling it, I will put it down and, and read something else because life is too short to finish a boring book. So I'm, I've become very aware then of how books grab me and how quickly they can pull me in and get me hooked. And Sherry Priest can do it on the first page every mm -hmm. single time. And so I look at her like the Maplecroft series. What does she do there? How is that first page is it something stylistic that she's doing? Is it the kind of dialogue? I just am fascinated by whatever it is about her that hooks me. And uh, so she's a big one that I think is really tearing it up right now. 
So I was listening to, I think it was writing excuses. You were talking about like becoming a horror writer and mm-hmm. how it surprised you. And it came out of you sort of being obsessed with serial killers or having so much reading about it. Mm-hmm. So did that surprise you in a way that that was your first book that got published that came out of something that you were just studying and that you just were really obsessed with? It did. Like I said, it, it was not on purpose. For whatever reason, I've always been super fascinated with serial killers and with abnormal psychology. And I don't study them as avidly today as I used to. I'm kind of behind the times a little bit. Yeah, it it certainly never occurred to me that that would be something I would end up writing about. Because I grew up reading Dragon Riders of Pern and Lord of the Rings and, you know, the sword books by Saberhagen and these kind of very flight of fancy kind of things. I never got into true crime, which is surprising. Let me rephrase that. I never got into true crime novels, but I have absolutely devoured true crime essays and memoirs and that sort of thing, news articles. Uh, And I think it's because I had never drawn the line and connected the dots to say, oh, there are also novels about this. And I I do not doubt, I think there is another universe in which I discovered, you know, The Girl Next Door or some of these other true crime novels as a child mm-hmm. and then grew up and became a crime writer. I'm probably <laughs> a lot more wealthy in that universe. <laughs> um, but uh, uh, yeah, and I and uh Every now and then I think, well, should I jump into that? Should I try to do that? And I, and I haven't convinced myself that I, that I want to, to make the leap. If I ever do, it is actually not going to be serial killers. Uh, one of my new true crime passions is food heists, food theft, uh, because there are so many amazing stories. I was astonished to learn, for example, that both Parmesan cheese and maple syrup are more valuable by weight than gold. And oh, wow. so there are people who steal them and in these incredibly elaborate heists. And I want to tell those stories. I want to do the research and be like that kind of journalist, narrative, nonfiction author who tracks down all these stories and writes them. I would love to tell the great maple syrup heist from about seven years ago, because it's such a fascinating story. And there are so many fascinating real people involved with it. Um, No time to get into that. But that's, you know, that's one of the one of the things on the chart of uh, what I want to try one day. Uh, random, random side note on that. Didn't Riverdale have a through line? Um, I don't know if any of you guys watched Riverdale, but I think they mm-hmm. had a maple syrup um heist Did they do the maple kind of, syrup heist yeah there was a maple yeah. syrup I uh, it's that. been years but um anyway it's just crazy it was super valuable and they were all into it so <laughs> they were killing people over it so that's great yeah, <laughs> I, I mean it. that's and that's what it would be is like a coen yeah. brothers caper style movie right. yeah um but yeah <laughs> it's what america needs right now dan <laughs> there's not enough food heist stories <laughs> i should write oh. one i'd like and not even bother with the true crime aspect just put out a thriller novel about somebody stealing cheese right and just go for it i'm in <laughs> throughout your career you've kind of pivoted so you wrote horror 
you went into young adult dystopian, then it was more cyberpunk. Mm-hmm. Was that on purpose to constantly pivot into another type of elemental genre? Sort of, yes. Um, a lot of it was like Partials, which was the first thing I put out after that that initial run of four horror novels, was very purposefully as different as I could make it. It was YA instead of adult. It was third person instead of first. It was a female protagonist instead of a dude. It was as different as I could possibly get because I did not want to pigeonhole myself. Um, but f- in general, I just write what I'm excited about. And when I got super excited about cyberpunk, I wrote a cyberpunk trilogy. In hindsight, that may have been what killed my career <laughs> because the world was not ready for cyberpunk in 2012 or whatever it was. Um, and it was... Uh, you know, I am still struggling today to get sales numbers back up because that series sold so poorly. Just you can't even imagine how poorly that series sold. But I I still am glad that I did it. And if I had it to do over again, I would do it the same way because I think it is more valuable to write what you're excited about than to write what you think the market wants. Yeah, and, and I'm curious about that, too, because, uh, you know, a lot of our community around this podcast and, you know, around the cruise and stuff, you know, we're genre writers and we're, we're trying to figure out our place and that kind of thing. And obviously we all want to get published, but I, I like to hear you say that you would have done it the same way. Um, yeah. Is that advice that you would give any aspiring writer is, you know, pick a genre for this piece and run with it and see what happens. And then don't be afraid of, of going into uh, other genres or, I know the market is kind of crazy, but you know, I know series sell really well and that kind of thing too. But if you, let's say if I were to sell a book in fantasy, should I be afraid to cross over um, considering your, your experience or your advice? This is a difficult question to answer because my answer, my personal preference, my gut instinct is write what you want, right? Because like we said, nobody does this because there's money in it, (laughs) you know? And if I say, no, don't write the exciting stuff, stick to one thing that you know you can sell and just chop wood and carry water and get it done. If I give you that advice, the odds are incredibly high that you're still not going to make a significant amount of money doing that. Right. And so then you're locked into a trajectory that you don't necessarily enjoy and you're still not reaping any significant benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that what the world needs more of is just passion pieces. You know, we don't necessarily want, and and this is going to be a terrible example, but Mad Max Fury Road. It's, mm. it's a dumb example to use because it's the fourth installment in a series, right? right. And mm-hmm. if I'm railing against remakes and long series, then... That's a dumb example to use, but it's it's the fourth installment in a three decades old series. Nobody was clamoring for it. There was no audience for it. It was a passion project from a creator who's like, you know what I really want to do, even if it's dumb, is this. And that's what he did. And it's one of the greatest movies of the last 20 years. No question. Uh, probably longer than that. I think it's one of the greatest action movies ever made. 
And, you know, you contrast that with a movie that comes out and is a sure thing because uh, art, just like the publishers I was talking about that are worried about middle grade science fiction, everyone who finances art at every level in every format wants the sure thing. And the sure thing is by its inherent nature designed for the lowest common denominator. It is going to upset as few people as possible and appeal to as many people, many people as possible. And more often than not, that results in something toothless and something that is, you know, it's, it's a, it's a McDonald's hamburger. Mm. Nobody loves them, but we like them. And when we're hungry and there's nothing else to eat, then we'll buy one. And that's kept them in business for who knows how long. But what we love is when there's a creator who says, this is what I'm excited about and there's nothing else like it. And I'm going to be new and I'm going to be innovative. I'm going to be audacious. That's what the market needs. And I suppose if I'm being fair, the market needs both kinds, right? Mm -hmm. Tom Cruise needs to make all of his blockbuster movies so that he can finance his little weird things right. like Magnolia. <laughs> um, that And so we need to have both. We need to have, you know, high audience Steven Soderbergh, and then we need to have weird indie Steven Soderbergh at the same time in order to, you know, have not only an audience, <laughs> but money that will help put out the little weird stuff that nobody wants. Because... It's not that nobody wants it. It's that it can't support the industry on its own. Right. That got into a long philosophical thing that didn't answer your question in any way. But no, it totally did. Because <laughs> I, I, I think what's important about that, what, what you're saying is we need all of it and we should feel free to create everything. But the under the through line here, obviously, with writing and, and storytelling is the consistency of the big blockbuster stuff is going to be there. But we mm -hmm. need the we need those projects and those fun things and the th those things that you really want to do. And I like that you're saying it's okay to create those things as well. <laughs> I think yeah. that's important. Well, and and you know when we talk about books, we can all point to the big series that are propping up, you know, entire publishers that are propping up um, genres. We need Harry Potter. Right. We need Wheel of Time. We need Harry Dresden. We need these cash cows. And I'm not saying that those are bad. I quite enjoy Harry Dresden. I really love that series. Yeah. Uh, but we need those. But at the same time, we need somebody who's like, you know, we need Sherry Priest to say, I'm going to tell a re historical retelling of Lizzie Borden and Cthulhu Mythos combined together. And five people are going to love it, but they're going <laughs> to love it so much. Right. And I'm one of those five. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think, though, it is also about writing a specificity to your experience in a broader range of a typical blockbuster hit? So I'll give you an example. When Daniel Jose Older came out with Half Resurrection Blues and the Bone Street Roomba series, mm -hmm. um, a lot of that urban fantasy was dwindling it was dwindling you had your heavy hitters like jim butcher and like mm -hmm. charlene harris was riding high on true blood but when those books came out it seemed so fresh because it came down to um a specificity like he was going through his own experience so do you think 
that's also what we need? Like, do you think that's what's really going to be like how the next big thing happens about people getting specific with their experience, but using that framework of a blockbuster? Oh, definitely. One of the kind of paradoxes of storytelling is that the more specific you get, the more universal your story becomes because you're not trying to please everybody. You're just telling the most authentic story you can. Um, again, most of my examples are, are coming from film instead of from books. But uh, Atlanta, the, the TV series Atlanta, uh, I have yeah. been to Atlanta a few times. I've never lived there. And I, I don't have that background. I am not a black man. But that incredibly specific, incredibly detailed slice of life of a black man living in Atlanta, because it is told with so, so much specificity, it, it suddenly explodes into this enormous universal thing that everyone can relate to it. Because we're like, okay, there, this is an authentic life and this feels real to me. And there are absolutely bits of it that I can identify with. And so even though it becomes maybe less familiar, it becomes more resonant. And we can say, oh, yes, I, I identify with this in a way that, you know, maybe something more specific, something less specific wouldn't work. So going, going back to, you know, you've switched like a lot of uh, genres or within that genre. Um, how do you know what book you're going to write next? Like, what is the energy behind it that tells you, you know what, I'm going to write this and that's what I'm going to start next? Well, it is excitement, which mm -hmm. is kind of what you already asked. Why, why am I excited about them? Uh, and I don't know. <laughs> I wish I had a really good answer for this. Um, <laughs> Like Zero G, for example, I'd been trying to write a bunch of other things and, you know, couldn't make them work. I'd written a horror, a new horror novel. I'm trying to start a new horror series and still have not made it really work yet. It's not firing on all cylinders. And then in the middle of that, stumbled across this old idea that I had written down um, and and which was Home Alone in Space. And I thought, okay, wait, that sounds, I remember really loving that idea when I wrote this down in my notebook <laughs> or whatever it was. And so I started to think about that more and more. And it was, at least for that book, it was the puzzle of how to make it work. How do I, because with YA and middle grade, one of the big hurdles to get over is why is it kids solving these problems instead of adults? Because if it is a problem big enough to threaten adults, then adults should by rights be involved. Um, and so trying to figure out how to make it a, a big problem that a little kid could deal with and that a little kid, you know, wasn't, we, we wouldn't read the book and go, well, this is stupid. He should have just gotten an adult to help him. How do we get over that? And how do we make all the pieces click so that this is the only way this story could possibly play out? That is what got me excited about that one. And once I had all those pieces in place, I realized, oh, well, this, this is going to write itself. And it did. It took me like three weeks to write that book. Um, you know, after two months of <laughs> puzzle solving <laughs> in order to get to that point. And so it just it depends uh, with the new horror series that I'm writing. It is uh, the character voice that really compels me. I had this kind of 
really vague idea that's like, let's take Stranger Things and let's take the girl with the silver eyes and let's, you know, turn it into this kind of horror mashup, age it up a little bit, you know, different kind of marketing ideas and comp titles, but nothing was really hooking me yet until I sat down and I tried to write, you know, a chapter or even just a monologue to figure out who the main character was. And in the process, you know, two or three chapters in or two or three versions of that same chapter, all of a sudden, this incredibly acerbic, aggressive, confrontational narrator that is kind of mouthing off to the reader all the time. That's what suddenly made it all sing in my head. And I'm like, okay, now I'm excited about this. And uh, uh, Nick, you actually read an early version of one of these chapters from that book. The, is it the swarm? Yeah. Oh my gosh. (laughs) I'm so surprised you have not sold this book. Like, and to me, it was wonderfully written. Well-rounded characters. Your main character was awesome. And the concept behind everything I was so excited for. And then you're just like, I can't get anyone to buy it. And I'm like, why not? Like I would buy it right now if I, you know, could. But okay, well, I, I've actually figured it out. If you want to hear, of course. Um, and I, I haven't had a chance to write a new draft of it, but I ended up taking it to Sherstie Naveen. She's my old assistant uh, who worked with me for several years, and then she left to start her own editing business. And uh, she's incredibly wonderful, incredibly talented, incredibly smart. And she knows my writing style really well. She's the only assistant I've ever had that I have trusted to do uh, copy edits for me uh, because I know she can she can mimic my style and my voice. And so I trust her to just, you know, here, take this and fix it. Um, I took it to her and she went through it and she had uh, another editor she works with named Emily go through it. And the two of them came back to me with this. I mean, I've got it right here. I've got this whole um, folder with all their notes in it that I haven't had a chance to. I mean, I've read them all and devoured them, and they're incredibly brilliant. And one of the things they pointed out about that book is that the threat, the villain, is very poorly embodied. Um, That there is a problem, but there isn't really an antagonist. And so there is a monster, but because of the way that that monster interacts with people, because it is primarily a swarm of, you know, vermin Mm -hmm. rather than, you know, a, a, an individual, it, it isn't working the way that I was assuming it was working, uh, because I'm accustomed from all my other horror to having this kind of head to head thing. And that's how I was writing it even though that's not what was actually happening. And so it's not that that kind of story cannot be told. It's that I was telling it the wrong way. And once they pointed that out and gave me some advice on how to fix it, I'm like, okay, yes, this will work. Uh, And now I just need to finally find the time and and do a new draft of it and make it work. That's that's really exciting because, like you said, I've I've read an early version of it and, like, Man, Dan, just hearing that you went to other people though, got some advice and feedback, <laughs> and you like you've you've got nineteen published books, like you know it never the lesson there, right? Is 
you never stop learning. You can never mm-hmm. stop having your like your community and group and stuff like that. So, I mean, sometimes we all know who Brandon Sanderson is, and like, unless like, you kind of know some people from his circle, like you don't realize how much Brandon Sanderson does this too. Yeah, um, where he's talking to people, and I know you and him are working on the Apocalypse Guard too. Um, which and a new one, and a new one. Yeah, we just finally got the contract hammered out for it, but I'm uh, I'm doing a new one with him. All right, cool. That's awesome. Projects together now. He's really big on collaborative pieces lately, isn't he? Yes, it's because as as uh, incredibly prolific as he is, he still has more ideas than he can possibly actually write, and you know he's one of those outsized anomalies who is making tons of money at this. And so people are just banging down his door and saying, please give us something, (laughs) anything. And he's like, well, what if Dan writes it and I help him? And then, and they're like, sure, whatever, fine. (laughs) We don't know who he is. But if your name's on it. (laughs) I want to go back to something because the three of us, me, Marshall and Nick have this, um, Friendly banter, argument, disagreement. Okay. Um, when you have friends or colleagues and peers, people you respect that are like, no, I think you need to send it. It's great where it's at. And you personally are like, mm, it's just not ready yet. I can make it better. Have you b- experienced that? And what would your advice be to listening to yourself when it comes to when something is ready, when you're happy with it? Well... When it's ready and when I'm happy with it are two different things. And that is a perspective that a lot of aspiring writers don't have yet because they haven't gotten far enough into the process to realize how it works. And so for me, with 19 published books under my belt already, I know that if something is good enough to sell, but not yet good enough to publish, that's a, that's fine. It's good enough to sell. And the editor and I both know there's going to be like 15 more revisions before it ever gets on a shelf. And so we don't have to make it perfect yet. That's what the whole editing process is for. And so if enough of your friends are saying, dude, this is great, dude or lady, I shouldn't. <laughs> it's, it's Will. Person. We're talking about Will here, Dan. Okay. Person. The boys are torturing me. <laughs> um, yeah. And and if you know in your heart that it is not good enough yet to sell, that the problems that they are overlooking that are so glaring to you, if you know that an editor is going to get hung up on those same problems, then yes, you're going to need to fix that first. But if you are confident that an editor is going to be excited by the idea and excited by your writing, And know that, okay, yes, this is all clicking. I can tell that you know what you're doing and that it is going to be relatively easy for me as an editor to help you bring this from a B up to an A. Mm -hmm. Then I'm going to take a chance and I'm going to go for it. Uh, On the other hand, don't necessarily take advice from me because I couldn't sell a book for four years. (laughs) (laughs) No, I appreciate your advice, Dan, because the three of us, you know, we've all been submitting, you know, short stories to various places and, and, you know, we're, we're writing, we're producing, we're sharing stuff. um, But we're trying to encourage Will to just put it out there. It is a shorter piece though. 
It yeah, is a it's shorter short, piece. It's short fiction, yeah. Okay. So. Yeah, they're trying to tell me to send it out, and I just know there's certain parts of it that I need to fix because I know I need to raise tension in certain areas and it could be better. And also, out of the three of us, I'm like the most voracious reader. So I feel mm-hmm. like I sometimes will get in my head and being like, this is not good enough. Right. Does that yeah. make sense? It does make sense. And, uh, you know, that that writing group that I mentioned in college that was me and Brandon Sanderson and a couple other friends, one of them uh, was named Nate, really good friend uh, and a very good writer. Uh, but his nickname, we all had nicknames that we'd given ourselves in the writing group. Mine was the egregious colon. And I'll just let you wonder what that's about, whether that's biological or grammatical. Um, his nickname was the eternal rewrite because he gave us chapter one of the same book, no lie, like 20 times. Mm-hmm. And it was never perfect. And that meant it was awful. And I think that that's another thing. It's a trap we can fall into, right? Because especially as a voracious reader, your ability to identify good writing is so much stronger than your ability to produce it. And, you know, you are practicing those muscles in an outsized proportion to the other ones. And so you can very easily get into this headspace where you're like, I know what good writing, what best-selling fiction looks like, and this is not it. Uh, And you can absolutely psych yourself out. But at some point, you have to stop. And the, the two best bits of writing advice I can give to anyone are, A, you have to write. You will never get anywhere in this business if you don't sit down and start writing something. And B... You have to stop writing. At some point, you have to give up. That thing will never be as good as you want it to be. It will never be perfect. Maybe you are in a position where you can improve it, or maybe you're in a position where you don't need to improve it and you're just afraid to let it go. I don't know. I haven't read it. (laughs) But (laughs) just speaking to writers in general, you have to write and then you have to stop writing. You have to move on. You have to accept that. the purpose of most of what you're writing right now is not to sell, but to teach you how to write the next thing better. And you may hit a point where you're like, okay, this is as good as I have time or skill to make it. I'm going to send it out into the world. I'm going to submit it to every short fiction journal I can find. And if somebody buys it, hooray. And if nobody buys it, That's fine because I'm going to write another thing and I'm going to send that out into the world. And I'm just going to keep doing that. Always be writing, always be submitting. And eventually you're just going to exercise that crafting good fiction skill up to the point where it is better than your identifying good fiction skill. And you'll be like, this is the most brilliant thing the world has ever produced. (laughs) And uh, it it goes back and forth on, on which muscle is stronger at any given time. All right, thank you. I appreciate that. That's wonderful advice. Yeah, Were you totally. listening? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah. I, listen, I've only rewritten it four times. There, I'm just one messing piece, with you, buddy. I'm like changing, and I'm sending it out. I promise you all. Perfect. Um, there we go. We're holding good. you to that. All yeah. right, great. I promise it's going to happen this month. I want to talk about writing inclusively okay. because I read Blue Screen, and there's so many parts of it that I really love, and I want you to talk to writers who are afraid to write the other 
but why is it important that we do it? Yeah, writing the other is a big passion of mine and and of writing excuses in general. And we do that whole kind of side line. It's it's not sideline is the wrong word. Subset of episodes that we we tag with writing the other, and we do them with uh, K Tempest Bradford, who runs the writing the other conference. And uh, I am usually the one who sits with her on those episodes. And that was a very specific choice we made when we were planning all of this is who, who do we want as the actual co-host face on these episodes and decided perhaps crassly that, that we wanted to have the, you know, the, the white man stamp of approval. That makes it sound so terrible to phrase it that way. But <laughs> um, just as, as a way of, of saying, look, this is this is not something that only certain people can do. This is something everyone can do. And so, you know, I am not a teenage Mexican girl, but I did write a whole trilogy from that perspective uh, because I did my diligence. And and there's more to go into about what kind of diligence to do and how to do it than we could possibly put into this. And so, I'm mostly just going to say. Go listen to the writing the other episodes, look up the writing the other conference. There's a lot to be, you know, there's a lot to learn, most of which can boil down to do your research, use expert readers, and try to be as as inclusive and as open-minded and as authentic as you can. And the reason that that is a passion for us, the reason that it is valuable uh, is, I guess there's a lot of reasons. First of all, we need to talk about the own voices movement. And the idea of the own voices movement is that there are some stories that ideally should be told from an inside perspective. Uh, and, you know, I did write a cyberpunk series with a, you know, Latina protagonist. Um, if I were to just write a slice of life, this is what it's like to be a teenage girl growing up in Los Angeles right now from a Mexican heritage. That's not my story to tell. Uh, but taking that across the spec fic barrier into cyberpunk, all of a sudden I'm not trying to, the, the, the reason that that works is because I'm not trying to recreate an exact experience. I'm not trying to tell you somebody's else's life. I'm just trying to tell you a fun cyberpunk story that has an inclusive cast with lots of different people in it. Um, and the reason that that is important, finally answering what I said I was going to answer earlier, is because we want to make room for own voices writers. We want to make room for more diverse writers. And we do that by normalizing a lot of these things. It is incredibly difficult to find, for example cyberpunk with latina protagonists mm -hmm. they're out there but there's not a lot of them and if you are a young mexican girl and i go to mexico once a year at least and i go to you know the guadalajara book fair and i talk to all these people and they are just so grateful finally somebody is writing about me finally my family is in a book they're incredibly happy to see that. And that is something that I, because of my track record, because I'm a published writer, 
I'm able to do that, perhaps more easily, I can convince a, uh, or I could seven years ago, I can convince a publisher to take a chance on that book. And then that normalizes it more. And it makes it easier for more writers from different backgrounds who are not old white men like me to get out and tell their own stories and say, well, it's not weird because look, these, these other books have already done it. Uh, and that I, I'm not trying to portray this as a white savior thing. And I worry that someone is going to listen to this podcast and say, oh, thank goodness Dan is here to <laughs> allow Mexican women to write cyberpunk. Like that's not what I'm saying <laughs> at all. What I'm saying is that there are there's a wider diversity of readers than there is of protagonists in fiction mm-hmm. right now. There right. is a wider range of people who want fiction than there is of the kinds of people portrayed in fiction. Um, and I always want people to have the chance to see themselves in the books they read. And so the more that I can do that and do it as respectfully and as authentically as I can, then that makes it easier for future writers and future readers to cross that barrier as well. You know, and every little drop helps fill up that bucket. Every little crack in the wall helps break it down. And, uh, you know, I look forward to the day when cyberpunk comes back in force and everyone's (laughs) writing it and people from all different backgrounds and ethnicities and genders and whatever. And we're getting all of these stories. Um, and so I, I think that our, I, I, I honestly think we have a, a responsibility, if that doesn't sound too haughty, to, uh, to be as inclusive in our fiction as we can. You know, I, yeah. I go to 12 Comic Cons a year, <laughs> not this year, because this year is the worst. Right. Uh, <laughs> but last year, I think I did 10 <laughs> Comic Cons and then a handful of other local conventions. And, you know, it's not all just 17-year-old white dudes who are out there. Right. And yet that's most of what I end up seeing in, in the fiction that I'm reading. And so inclusive fiction is not adding unnecessary, like, diversity. It's just accurately reflecting the world that we live in. Awesome. I love that. And I love, um, I just want to say this, the, so the Mirador um, series, I love it. And a lot of my white friends who didn't, doesn't speak Spanish, I actually had to go through and explain some of the nuances you put in <laughs> because they're like, they're like, cause I always talk about how much I love this book and they're just like, oh, yeah, I love it. I just feel like I'm missing something. So I would be like, well, we're going to have a little book club so I can go s- explain some of like the Spanish words and like go through mm-hmm. here. And I loved that it was just a part of the book and um, they needed to find out the information. I, I personally thought it was just really flawlessly done. <laughs> well, thank you very much. And uh, a lot of the way that that, that that was presented the way that I decided to present the the Spanish, for example, actually comes from Daniel Jose older. Uh, you know, he was on the writing excuses retreat several years ago and I was talking to him. He's got a pretty famous YouTube video about not italicizing mm-hmm. non-English words. Yep. Right. And so I was, I'm that's kind of when I recognized him, I'm like, Oh, you're the dude who <laughs> talks about. And then we got into this whole conversation about it. And, uh, 
and I came away, you know, really inspired about not just uh, the use of Spanish in the book, but how to use Spanish in the book. And I, I think I, you know, back on the cruise ship, right before we lost whatever internet connectivity we had, I emailed my editor immediately and was like, guess what, dude, we're changing this. Mm-hmm. We are going to change everything about this uh, because this is going to work better. And yes, I know that I have pushed the Spanish a little further than a lot of monolingual readers are ready for because it shows up in a lot of the reviews <laughs> uh, that there, there's way too much Spanish in this book about Mexican people. Um, <laughs> and uh, But it is important to get that character right and to get the culture right. Uh, you know, I didn't just live in Mexico. I lived in Juarez, which is right on the border uh, where they speak both languages fluently, mm-hmm. or rather they speak uh, Spanglish or Pocho fluently, and they can't really speak either language by itself. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people that, that I knew because they're a border town and it is a fully bilingual society. So that's kind of what I was trying to capture. Now, going back to doing your research and presenting something authentically, one interesting phenomena for me is the uh, kind of Mexican-American community has not picked up the Mirador books. It never caught on with them. And I think that that's because I, I didn't manage to accurately reflect their culture and who they are. That book is selling gangbusters in Mexico. It's a huge hit there because that is the culture that I did manage to capture because that's the Mm -hmm. one I was more familiar with. And so I kind of arrogantly assumed, oh, I've lived in Mexico. I know all this stuff. I know all these people. I love everything about them. I can write this and it's going to be easy. And what I ended up writing was Mexicans rather than Mexican Americans. And the audience that grabbed the book knew about it. That's amazing. Um, I love that book. Thank you for writing it. All right. So I want to talk about writing excuses uh, for a minute. Did it surprise all of you about the impact that you're having on the writing community in a positive way? Absolutely. None of us have ever realized that. uh, I mean, even today, we, we don't realize how big we really are. Um, you know, when we started doing the retreat, which I guess now is eight years ago, um, we assumed that nobody was going to come to this thing. We're like, we can do it. Let's give it a shot. Uh, and we're like, we're going to open 30 slots and no one's going to buy them, but at least we're going to try. And we Mm -hmm. sold out in 15 minutes. And then the second year we're like, wow. Obviously, this was a bigger hit, but everyone who wanted to come to this came last year. No one's going to come this year. And then we sold out in like 30 seconds. Like it was so (laughs) fast. And that's why we ended up moving to cruise ships and moving to larger venues and opening it up to, uh, you know, a larger audience because and every year we think "Eh, no one's going to come this year. (laughs) Every year. Um. And we are surprised at uh, the level, the the number of people who know us or who listen to the show. Uh, There are people who've never read any of our books who listen to the show. 
Um, that is becoming a lot less common now that Brandon has exploded. Right. And he is now Brandon Sanderson in capital letters. <laughs> uh, everyone's read him. And so people will say, oh, you're on Brandon's show. <laughs> yes, I guess. I, I guess. We're, we're, sure. <laughs> we're on Brandon's show. Okay. Um, and I, at the same time, one thing that is incredibly gratifying to me is that we're not the only writing podcast and we're not the only big writing podcast. There are a lot of them. You have one. Right. There's so many out there and it's great. Uh, because I don't want us to be the only voice because we're wrong about a lot of stuff and we only have so many opinions. That's one of the reasons that we're trying to bring in new guests all the time is because we've been doing this show for like 13 years. And I think I may have said everything I have to say about dialogue <laughs> or whatever, like maybe that well is dry. I'm still trying to always learn new stuff. But it's more interesting to me to get someone like uh, Mahatab Narsim or Lari Elena or uh, we did a bunch of episodes this year with uh, Victoria Schwab. And they are so wonderful to bring in as kind of temporary co-hosts because they have fresh perspectives and they think about writing differently than us. I'm, I'm glad that we are able to kind of fold the show into new configurations as necessary to keep it fresh and to, to keep from just repeating ourselves over and over. And I'd like to throw out there too, about what you think. I have some insight to this, but I'm going to ask you um, about the retreat going forward. Obviously with COVID and everything else we have, obviously we can't, we can't be on a boat. We should have been on a boat already. Um, some of us <laughs> realized it. Like we were talking before the show via Facebook. It's like, Hey, you remember this from last year? It's like, Ah, you know, um, yeah. but so what do you guys, what do you envision the future of the writing excuses retreat portion? I know there is plans to do the cruise next year, hopefully fingers crossed. Um, but beyond that, um, just if, if you can talk about that, you know, I am, I am the, the pessimist, uh, who, and I'm, I'm not going to pretend like I'm the realist. I know that my pessimism goes beyond what is, what is likely. My personal suspicion is that the cruise industry is dead. Uh, I do not have any insider information on this. In <laughs> fact, what inside information I do have suggests that cruising is going to come back and it's going to be fine. Uh, you know, we've talked to some very high ranking people at Royal Caribbean who are like, no, we want to keep doing your cruise. We want to do your event, all this stuff. I can't see how it's going to work until there is a vaccine like right. until there is a uh, be, because none of the none of the social distancing and mask wearing and all of that stuff that works everywhere else doesn't work on a cruise ship like it is True. a mm -hmm. perfectly engineered environment for the transmission of disease and so pessimistically i personally think that cruising might just be dead in general and, and, and uh, we'll have one or two years of trying and then it will just go away. Mm. I don't know if that's true. I sincerely hope that it's not and that we get, um, you know, viable vaccines coming in and, and that we can make it work. That aside, I think that the future of writing excuses retreats is going to be more smaller events. And, uh, this is not an official announcement of anything, 
but where I suspect things are going and kind of what I am personally pushing for and what we have talked about a little bit behind the scenes is breaking this big 200, 300 person event writing conference down into say four 50 person writing conferences where there's 30 or 40 students and then 10 or 15 staff and you get a, a more intimate experience. You get more face time with the instructors and with the published authors. You get to know each other better. You get more workshopping time. Also, that is a model that can work really well under pandemic conditions. Um, we are able to, you know, do this outside on a lawn with masks on instead of in the basement of a cruise ship full of <laughs> 5,000 drunk travelers uh, who don't wear masks and who touch everything. Right. Yeah. So that's kind of where I think we're going. The broader question for me, because I go to so many cons in general, is what is going to happen to Comic-Con culture? I think that yeah. the Comic-Cons were already a bubble, right? Almost mm-hmm. every major city in the country has their own Comic-Con or their own pop culture con of some flavor. And I don't know if those can survive. And I don't know if I mean, that's something that can recover more easily than cruising, right? Yeah. Because, you know, we can just have two years of no Comic-Cons and then a viable mm-hmm. vaccine shows up and everyone can go out in public again and shake hands and not wear masks and and you can have 2000 people in a conference center buying you know action figures or whatever right and we can we can go back to that after 2 years of not doing it pretty much just instantly we can flick that light switch on and off relatively easily at the individual level it's going to hurt a lot of vendors who rely on this stuff yeah but in a in a macroscopic sense Comic-Cons could come back. Cruising, I don't know. If we have two full years in which no one can cruise, what's going to happen to those ships? Can people afford to maintain them? Or do they cut their losses and sell them off for scrap metal? And then they're just not sailing on at, at all anymore. I, I don't know. Yeah. I like what you said, too, about the conventions. I love going to conventions. I mean, I've gone to mm-hmm. San Diego Comic-Con for close to 10 years now. And I love it. I got Nick and we were all supposed to meet up this in July. And, and it's heartbreaking (laughs) when, when you have these plans and you're, and you're making the plans. And then when something like this happens and, you know, I hope that we can get back to something like that, but a lot of things is, and, you know, businesses are finding this too, that you can do this stuff virtually as well. Um, Mm -hmm. And I know there's a lot of other little geek conventions, you know, uh, DC fandom and stuff like that, that are popping up because they can do it virtually and get the same news out and stuff like that. Um, but you're right. The vendors and stuff, that's the hard part. Artist Alley at San Diego Comic-Con, you know, those folks that are really relying on that kind of stuff. It's, it's interesting, interesting to see uh, what might happen going forward. So, yeah. And, and I don't know the, uh, the booth that I mostly work with is called Bard's tower. And I travel with them to multiple conventions a year. And what he has done is kind of jump into publishing instead. Uh, he's taking a lot of the authors he works with, me included, who do a lot of our own self-pub stuff, 
and he is leveraging all his contacts and all of his uh, kind of media savvy and marketing background into becoming a small press instead of a Comic-Con booth. And we all hope that we can get back to doing booths in addition to that. But what this pandemic, what this quarantine is forcing everyone to do is take stock of the way we've been doing things and see if there's a better way to do it. And I think that that's something that needed to happen anyway. You know, a lot of these cons were unsustainable. And now that we have to take a step back and we have to see, well, how can we still interact with fans and how can we still take their money without the ability to do it 2,000 people at a time in the Denver Convention Center um, is is making us find new and different ways of, of contacting people. And one of the truisms of art, of, of becoming a creator, is that you don't need a million fans, right? right. You just need right. a you you don't need a million casual fans. You need a couple thousand dedicated ones. Loyal fan uh, base, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, a, a small loyal fan base will do more for you than a really big fickle fan base, which yep. is what a lot of authors have, especially in the YA market. Mm-hmm. Uh, YA is a really interesting place to publish because there is virtually no author loyalty, and in fact, often very little series loyalty which is why today YA has moved mostly to standalone books Mm. because the model is get this out, get everyone to read it, and then they'll move on to whatever the next thing that we push really hard is. Um, Contrast that with Epic Fantasy, who are incredibly loyal. They have, you know, you will be selling to a smaller group of people, but they will buy absolutely everything you publish and probably all the swag that goes with it. And so... There's just a lot of different ways to find fans and there's a lot of different things to produce to give people what they want. Um, what I am doing right now is uh, I have in back in March, something that I have always wanted to try. I took the plunge and I tried it, which is professional GMing. Uh, I, I'm now a professional game master. And my, my initial pitch for that was you're all stuck at home back in March when, you know, the lockdown, the quarantine was super strict almost everywhere. Don't go outside. Don't talk to anybody. And so I started, you know, just putting out, uh, you know, Facebook posts and Twitter posts and things and saying, Hey, if you are stuck at home and starved for human interaction, come join a role-playing campaign. And uh, I am at the point now where I run seven campaigns a week for people and am making enough money on that to pay the mortgage. And wow. uh, and so it's a, it's a very nice sideline to my business. And I'm still writing books and I'm still doing publishing and I'm still hoping that all of that can work. And But I am not just waiting for the world to go back to normal. Right. I'm not waiting for things to go back the way they were. I think that this is this is a huge event that is going to change everything going forward and taking the chance to to try new things, to try to interact with fans and tell them stories in different formats and different ways is what is going to separate the people who just lose everything and the people who still manage to make a living in this weird industry. 
Mm-hmm. I've seen your ads, and I, you know, we're we got a couple questions about your pot or your other show <laughs> typecast as well. Um, but you mentioned publishing a little bit, and mm-hmm. we, oh man, I can't remember how long ago it was, but you had an open call to writing excuses alumni about a cyberpunk anthology in a yes. world that you've already built. Mm-hmm. Um, can you kind of tell us a little bit about that experience and what you can in as far as like NDAs goes on how that project's going for you guys. Um, Cause I know the pandemic pandemic probably slowed things down a bit for you as well. Yeah, we, uh, so this actually, speaking of role-playing games, this comes from a, a role-playing game project that I was in. I did a write for hire thing for a, uh, a really great role-playing book called tiny frontiers, which is kind of a, a minimalist, uh, settingless science fiction space opera game and what the publisher does is the second half of every book they put out is a bunch of micro settings where you're just like you know here's all the rules up front and here's how to play the game and here's why it's fun and what you can do but then the back half is take these rules and plug them into this new setting or this idea or this whatever and it's a really neat thing so Everyone look up Tiny Frontiers from Gallant Night Games. <laughs> uh, I have a setting in there called The Venture, which was basically a uh, space opera, cyberpunk, uh, Legend of the Five Rings mashup. You know, mm-hmm. that's me playing with other people's toys again. Uh, I wanted to take this idea of a fully privatized government and explode it to a ridiculous degree. And so it's it's a space opera world in which there's a the the whole galaxy is run by what's essentially seven or eight competing corporate syndicates that uh you know have have brand loyalty is everything and, and uh they they're almost like you know warrior clans more than they are corporations so anyway i thought that was so neat that i went to the publisher of that game and said hey i've written this micro setting for you and it's awesome can we tweak the contract so that i can keep the IP rights. And he was incredibly accommodating and wonderful and said, yes, you can. And so I had that in my back pocket because I'm like, this is going to be great. I want to do something with this, but I don't know what. And then a couple of years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine who has started a shared world uh, fiction anthology company where that is their entire business is they take authors who have settings and they, and then they create shared world anthologies where they will get, you know, 15 or so different writers who all contribute a story set in the same world. And maybe they interconnect or maybe they're just, you know, maybe some characters cross over or maybe not, however it works. Um, and I thought, well, this is perfect. And I've got this setting, which I don't know what else to do with. Let's try this. And we were able to get some, some cool big names to uh, offer stories to us. And I, am not at liberty yet to say who they are. Um, and and they're probably not who you're thinking of. Like we didn't get George R. R. Martin or anything like that. Um, but we got some cool friends of mine who are, are big names that I'm incredibly excited to have because I love their fiction and I love their writing. Uh, and then we still had like six or so slots open after we got all of the pros that we were, were really interested in. And I, decided to open that up to writing excuses alumni and thought if we aren't able to fill these slots there, then we'll just go wide and, and we'll open it up to anybody. But uh, we were able to to fill all those slots just with alumni. 
uh, and some really exciting stories. So I am in what I will call the second round of edits. I have read the first draft of almost every contributor's stories uh, and, and returned notes to them. And I have started to get second drafts from some of them. I don't know how long this is going to take. You know, just like it has with every other aspect of our entire world, this stupid pandemic has slowed us <laughs> down and changed our timelines and ruined everything. Right. So I don't know how long it's going to take, but I'm really excited. Uh, I really love collaborative storytelling. It's one of my very favorite things because it produces ideas that I would never have thought of. That's why I like shared world anthologies. That's why I like role-playing games. That's why I love all of this stuff because I created this fun world to play in. I, I made this little sandbox full of toys, but the things other people are doing with them are just phenomenal. One woman, a friend of mine, Maddie Murdoch, who's on Typecast with me, uh, we invited her to, to contribute a story and she just gave us this jaw-dropping story about a guy who is trying to basically suborn an AI, but he, and, and so it's kind of very classic cyberpunk in that sense. There's this AI that's running a game program and it's incredibly addictive and it is cutting into our market share. And so we send some corporate spies in to mess it up so that our game is more popular than their game and things like that. But she's layered on top of that, this religious idea where the, the operative they sent in to do this is, uh, you know, trying in his own life to kind of come to terms with his spirituality and where he is in the world. And that gets kind of overlapped on top of this AI and the AI starts, you know, having conversations with him about religion and, and wow. all of this stuff. And it's <laughs> incredibly cool. I would never have come up with that on my own. And I would never have been able to write it as well as she did. And so I'm super excited for this anthology to come out. For all I know, it's going to be three more years. I <laughs> desperately hope that it's not. I hope that next year we can put this book out. I just, but uh, yeah, I just it's think gonna it's be cool that, cool. sorry, I just think it's cool that you, you threw it out to the alumni community too. I know uh, a ton of us appreciate thinking, you know, going to us first basically and being like, hey, are you interested in this? And that's the really part of the community that I think is important around uh, writing. And so we appreciate mm -hmm. that for sure. Well, can't I wait mean, to see it. <laughs> I I have uh, done a lot of writing conferences with the Writing Excuses alumni. I mean, that's why they're alumni. So I've right. read a lot of your writing. Yeah. In fact, I think I've read writing from all three of you. Yep. And uh, it is, uh, I, I know that there are really good writers out there who just haven't gotten their lucky break yet. And so if I can in some way help be maybe not the lucky break, but a really small step that helps you reach the lucky break, right. um, then that's what I'm here for. I just want to comment on something that you said earlier, too, about how everyone says, oh, you're on the podcast with Brandon. He was the last one that I actually read. <laughs> Good for so you. I've read all of Mary Robinette's and then yours and then Howard's. And then I was like, oh, and everyone, all my friends would read Brandon. I was like, I'll get to him. Okay, I'll get to him. <laughs> so I just, it makes me laugh because I always think of I actually think of you and Mary Robinette first when I think yeah. of writing excuses because you're the first ones I actually dug in and actually read. So I just thought awesome. that was 
Well, thank you very much. Yeah, I have known Brandon for like 25 years, long right. before either of us were published, you know, back when we were just these idiots in college, uh, instead of idiots out of college, which we are now. Um, and so we have a very fun kind of confrontational relationship in the sense of everyone who I it, it's to the point where living in Utah, if I tell someone I'm an author, they say, oh, authors are great. Have you read Brandon Sanderson? <laughs> My and it, goodness. It's getting old, man. Oh, that's I so bet. funny. But I have a movie and he doesn't. So there you go. You're neener. Oh, did you want to talk about Typecast at all? I would love to talk about Typecast. Let's talk about Typecast. Awesome. So Typecast RPG. This is another thing I've always wanted to do is uh, do an actual play D&D campaign online. And these things are exploding now, uh, primarily because of Critical Role. Right. And, uh, you know, Critical Role was the, f- you know, not the first, but it was the first to go big. Yeah. And it is so big. People don't even realize how big Critical Role is. Oh, it's huge. Um, <laughs> and then all these other ones started to pop up. And it was sometime like a year and a half, almost two years ago. I can't remember exactly when it was. Deborah Ann Wool, the actress put one out on like geek and sundry or something Mm -hmm. and it was only five or six episodes long Mm -hmm. um but it had incredible production values and she was the gm and for i love how nerdy she is and i thought and and i don't i don't mean this as an insult to her because i think she's wonderful but what i thought at the time was crap if we're already at the point where celebrities and actors are doing their own DD shows it's about to not be cool anymore. Like the market is going to hit saturation. <laughs> and if I don't jump in and do this now, I'm never going to get my chance. And so I grabbed a couple of other authors, uh, mostly Brian McClellan and Charlie Holmberg, who are other locals that I know and who are big nerds. And we started our own and uh, we made our own show. We kind of designed this whole thing. Uh, our gimmick, quote unquote, is that uh, everyone on the show is a science fiction or fantasy author. And, uh, you know, we've had some shakeups of the cast from the early days. Uh, we used to have Alan Barr, who's uh, he's actually the publisher of uh, Gallant Night Games and Tiny Frontiers. And he's an incredibly good friend of mine and an incredibly talented person. He had to step away from the show. We had my brother on, who's another science fiction YA author. He had to step away. Uh, and in their place, we've gotten uh, Ethan Sprout and Howard Taylor, and now Charlie's had to leave, and and so different different things have have changed with the cast. But we are really loving doing it, yeah. um, you know. And it uh, at first it was mostly just my excuse of being able to do get back into role playing every week again and pretend like it's part of my job because it's ostensibly like promotional or or lucrative. We don't really make any money. We we would like to one day. So everybody go watch us and subscribe on YouTube or whatever. But um, it is mostly just an opportunity for us to uh, get together and do this fun collaborative storytelling game and bring in guests every now and then. Uh, and, and we, we want to see where it goes now, as you have a lot of writers on there, are you guys planning on a, ever doing like short pieces, open world anthologies like you did before within this world that you're building? Well, that could be fun. I've, I've honestly never thought of it. Um, you know, we get about 
40 or 50 viewers max. <laughs> and so I don't know if there's a market for it. Um, so yeah, we, uh, we had very high hopes in the beginning. You know, we were thinking right. and we made sure because we are pros and we have been down this road before we made sure that the contracts we established with all of the cast enable us to produce fiction or game books or something like that should the opportunity ever arise. And it really hasn't yet. Uh, I don't think that we are at the point of uh, popularity or viewership where we could feasibly produce something like that and make it financially worth our time. Right. Um, I want to get to that point. Um, and so we're actually right now in the process of trying to figure out what we're going to do for our next campaign. Um, this is, this is, uh, this is new information that nobody knows. We are probably <laughs> going to wrap up the current campaign at the end of this year and then start a new one in January. That's not set in stone yet, but I, I suspect that that's what's going to happen. Gotcha. And so we've been talking internally about, well, what do we do? Do we want to stick with D and D because it's popular or do we want to try a different game and kind of try to introduce new games to, to a wider audience? Um, you know, how, how do we want to do, do we want to stick with fantasy? What are the hallmarks that make us unique, that make us different? We are all writers. We are all authors. And so does that mean, uh, that we need to do something literary or does that mean that we need to create our own setting? Um, I think more so than setting, what makes our show stand out is the actual storytelling and the character arcs. We we work hard on those yeah. and try to tell good stories that lead the characters in new places. So it's not just monster of the week kind of stuff. So I don't know. I don't know where we're going to go with it, but it's been a lot of fun and everyone should go watch it. And we'll put a link in the show notes, of course, for all the things you mentioned, um, especially stuff like that. I mean, uh, I, you know, D&D is great. And, and I personally, I love playing. I like DMing myself, but like, it's, it's a lot. I can't believe you run. You, it's still seven campaigns in my head right now <laughs> that you just said earlier is like blowing my mind. <laughs> you know what? And I still have slots open. So if any of your oh, wow. listeners or any of you, if you want to do a game, let's do a game. Aren't you? Um, you currently are doing a Harry Dresden, yeah, tabletop right now as well. Right? I'm, I'm running a Dresden Files campaign right now, uh, set in Seattle, and uh, it's a blast. That's uh, awesome. They just had a huge fight in, in, a, in Puget Sound at the bottom of Puget Sound just yesterday. It was a lot of fun. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I love, I love game mastering. I love doing this. And so I know that I'm going to hit a point where I'm like, nope, ah, that was one campaign too many. I can't keep all this in my head. This is too much for me. But right now I'm at a, a stage where I know I could take a few more on yeah. and still make it work and, and still have them be fun and interesting. So everyone, you know, it's this is what I every time I do an interview, this is always how I close my let's talk about typecast or whatever. Um, I'm a Star Trek fanatic. And the Star Trek role-playing game is amazing. So somebody please hire me to do a Star Trek campaign because that's oh. what I really want to do. <laughs> you heard it here. I love that. <laughs> As we wrap up, usually what we ask folks is um, what current projects you're working on. We've talked a lot about you know the other stuff you're doing outside of writing. Mm -hmm. um, but 
Is there anything currently that you haven't mentioned yet that you're working on right now writing-wise? Uh, I actually just turned in two, uh, two projects. The third Zero-G book is called Stargazer, and I have just finished awesome. copy edits, and that should be out on Audible in December. Sweet. Uh, we are uh, just ramping up the press uh, print production for the second Zero-G book called Dragon Planet. That's already on Audible. They have a one-year exclusivity contract, which means the audio came out December of 2019. In December of 2020, we can put out ebook and print book of Dragon Planet. And so this December, you're going to see uh, ebook and print of that, and you're going to see audio of book three, and they're all going to be awesome. And so we're kind of head down in that right now, mm-hmm. um, though a lot of that kind of print production stuff is what my wife does and my job is to write more right <laughs> so, um <laughs> what i need to finish is and i've actually got a huge whiteboard right here that you can't see that has this <laughs> stupidly long list of things that i have to do um i have to write uh the dark one novel with brandon sanderson i right. have to revise the swarm and make that horror thing work uh i have to create that kind of educational edition of zero G. Uh, I have to figure out a, uh, a really good fantasy middle grade and I don't have a really great idea for one yet. And so I'm, I'm kind of holding back. I don't want to just do it to do it. I want to mm-hmm. do it because I've got an awesome thing. Uh, and then beyond that, I've got a big epic fantasy that I want to write and I don't know when I'll ever have time to get to it. <laughs> I've got about 75 pages of it and it's so cool, but who knows? Right. I'm, I'm too busy for that. That's really exciting stuff. Do you want to ask the last question, Will? You always yeah, raise that it's one. Always my, yeah, it's always me. <laughs> so we always ask, uh, this is our last question, and because we're called what, Just Keep Writing, mm-hmm. what keeps you writing even when you're having good days or when you're having bad days or just, you know, what makes you want to just keep producing work and writing? Oh, man. I, I suppose there's probably two answers to this. Because the fear-based answer is, I never want to have to have a real job again, right? (laughs) Somewhere out there, there's a cubicle with my name on it. And if I slow down, it's going to catch up to me. And I'm going to have to go back working for the man every night and day. And I don't want to do that. Uh, But the the more exciting answer, the peppy, fun, inspirational answer is, what keeps me writing is just the thrill of new things. Whether it is trying a new genre, like how I accidentally stumbled into horror, or now I'm trying to write fantasy, or maybe it's trying an all new medium like uh, collaborative storytelling or editing a short fiction anthology. Maybe it is, uh, you know, trying an absolutely new format. Working with Audible, there's actually a lot of really cool opportunities there uh, that I have never had access to before. And so there's always something new to try and something new to do. And maybe I would have a more secure career if I just picked one thing and <laughs> stuck to it. But that's not what I'm in this for. I'm, I'm in this to, to try new things. And that's what keeps me writing. That's awesome. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, Dan, uh, we can't thank you enough for joining us uh, and, and taking time away from all the things you're doing uh, to sit down with us. So we really, really, really appreciate it. Um, last thing, of course, before we let you go is how can people find you on the Internet? Um, if you have, you know, 
Twitter, Instagram, Patreon, any of that um, kind of okay, stuff. Okay, yeah. So I do have a Patreon where I do uh, uh, I run a monthly writing group, and so just look up Dan Wells on Patreon, and you'll find me there. Um, I've got Typecast RPG, which you can find on Twitter. We also have a website and a newsletter you can sign up for. Uh, we're on YouTube as well because everything gets uh, you know archived into YouTube, so you can watch the old episodes. I have a, I actually also do game reviews on YouTube. I have my own YouTube channel. So if you look up Dan Wells on YouTube, I'm also there. I've got a website, thedanwells.com. And it pains me to pronounce it the instead of the, because I was trained so carefully by my <laughs> second grade teacher. But if I say the Dan Wells, people write the letter V and it's not a V. It is thedanwells.com. Uh, and that has all my books and stuff. I'm also I have social media accounts, but I hate social media and I never use them. So every <laughs> now enough. and then you can tell when Dan is really bored or waiting for a plane or something, because I will get on Twitter and retweet like a 50 things. <laughs> and then other than that, it's just promotional stuff. Like it's not a good way to interact with me or talk to me because I'm never on Twitter or Facebook, <laughs> but uh, the website and the, the YouTube stuff and the Twitch stuff, those are the ways to find me. Awesome. awesome. Well, thanks again, Dan. We really appreciate you. Um, yeah, thank and you very much. This was a lot of fun. And we hope to see you soon-ish in one way, shape, or form. <laughs> Hopefully, you know, we don't know if this will be on a boat or not, but uh, uh, we'll figure something out. Thanks, At some appreciate point, it. there will be in-person conferences again. And awesome. there we shall reunite. <laughs> one Sounds day. good. And this has been Just Keep Writing, a podcast for writers, by writers, to keep you writing. Check out our website at justkeepwriting.org. You can find links to our social media and Discord channel in the show notes, as well as any other links mentioned during the show. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is patreon.com slash just keep writing. Thanks for listening. Now just keep writing.